Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. As a church, we've been going through the book of Mark, and it has been my prayer, it's been my prayer and my hope that your view, our church's view of Jesus, has been helped in this series. When it comes to your view of Jesus, if I could say it like this, there are, there are a lot of Jesuses that are found, that are picked up from people in church outside of church. There's a lot of different personalities or flavors that we grab a hold of, that we're drawn to. Sometimes it's because of life experience. Sometimes it's church environment. But we grab a hold of a a specific or a certain part of Jesus that we embrace. Uh, You might consider some of these with me today. and There's a variety of them. We've got the squishy Jesus, right? The squishy Jesus who blesses you no matter what. Everybody loves the squishy Jesus, right? There's the staunch, they all kind of start with S if that helps you. There's a staunch Jesus. It's the law keeper. It's the rule keeping Jesus. There's the socially conservative Jesus who's all about traditional marriage and family. There's the socially progressive Jesus who only cares about the poor. There's the Sage Jesus. He's the teacher who gives you wisdom. There's the supernatural Jesus. He's the miracle worker. There's the motivational speaker Jesus, right? He's the one that fires you up. Then there's the supervisor Jesus. You know who the supervisor Jesus is? He's the one who offers you leadership lessons to help you build your business and your career. There's the, what I would call the supreme being Jesus, who's this disconnected deity. He's too big. He doesn't understand me. He's disconnected from me. Then there's the servant Jesus. The servant Jesus, who's like a genie. Just does for others what they need at all times. Then there's the, maybe my favorite, the systematic Jesus. He just wants everything neat and tidy and organized. And then for some, there's a, they really want Jesus to be this strong kind of a guy, right? So there's the strong, and if I can call him the shredded Jesus. He's the tough guy, right? Flipping over tables and flexing on everyone after he does it. You see, we pick up this view of Jesus, and we, we tend to grab a hold of one. One of our team members this week asked me, who's your favorite Jesus? And I kind of showed you. I really love the, I love the systematic Jesus, but I find myself often always liking, just liking the servant Jesus, the one who just does everything I need. I could go on and on with this. The point here is not to pick on anyone, but to really give us a picture of, of how we often see Jesus in these different aspects. And the truth is, the truth is, every one of those aspects that I gave you, even if I was being somewhat flippant about it, speaks to a different aspect of Jesus. 
What we've been trying to do in Mark's gospel for these last 16 messages has been to rewire our mind, to rewire our hearts, to see and savor, to see and to savor the real and risen Jesus Christ. It's to rewire how you and I tend to think of Jesus and to instead let the Bible tell us who Jesus is. And the truth is, the reason we need that is because the person of Christ, I will argue today and next Sunday, is the most misunderstood person in human history. The Jesus of Scripture is the most misunderstood person in human history. And it's both heartbreaking and gut-wrenching as we watch. Here it is in our misunderstanding of Jesus, what we tend to do, and we don't necessarily mean to, but we tend to do with Jesus is we reduce him. We reduce Jesus. We bring him from the real life, real risen Christ of Scripture to a reduced version that makes sense to us. So what we need to do is we need to join with the disciples in Mark chapter 4 when they in verse 41, when they, speaking of Jesus, ask the question, what manner of man is this? What manner of man? Who is this man? I mean, this is, this is the question. And if I can just say today, this is the question that every person, whoever walks on this earth, has to answer. Who is Jesus? I asked you this morning, I asked our church family this morning, when was the last time you stepped back and thought, what manner of man is this? And that's what our goal is here. Our goal is to ask, who is this man? You see, for a Christian, for a Christian, the flourishing of the Christian life does not happen because you keep rules, you run faster with Jesus, you do more for Jesus. The flourishing of the Christian life doesn't come by your activity with Jesus Your flourishing as a Christian comes as you expose yourself more and more to the real Jesus. Your flourishing as a Christian will come as you expose yourself more to Jesus in the same way that a daffodil opens by light and warmth over time, in the same way a baby becomes healthy and grows by by care and affection. Christians grow as they stop trying to work for their acceptance and they see Jesus for who he is. And so we have to ask the question again, what manner of man is this? Are you seeing and savoring the Jesus of Scripture? Today's passage for us is very interesting. We want to understand it and draw strength from it, and it's going to be a a more brief time together, but I do want you to see the text this morning. And so find your place with me in Mark chapter number 3. Mark chapter number 3. And I want you to find your place there in verse 20, whether it's in your Bible, whether it's in your handout, whether it's on the screen. You've got a variety of places you can follow along, but I want you to see God's Word as I read it from verse 20 through verse 30. And this is God's Word. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. 
And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And a house, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith whosoever they shall be blasphemed. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall never uh, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. Now, as we work through this text there and we read those verses. I would ask you to think with me, and I hope you followed along, but I would ask you to think how you would describe this passage in one word. How would you describe it in one word? I want you to think about that. How would you describe this passage in one word? And the way I would recommend to you today is the word accusation. Jesus is being accused. Remember I said, this man is the most misunderstood man in human history, and the most misunderstood man in human history is being accused. But who is accusing Jesus? In the text, there were two groups accusing Jesus. Who are they? Now, before I answer this, I want you to think, for the majority of Christians, the majority of Christians, if I asked you, who would you say are the two people groups who have most profoundly shaped who you are as a person? The majority of Christians would answer that question by saying, I have been most profoundly shaped in my life by my family and my, by religious or spiritual leaders. My family or religious and spiritual leaders. Family, mom, dad, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Teachers, theologians, Sunday school teachers, Christian authors. And so I ask you again to think with me in this text where Jesus is being accused, who is accusing him? And the answer is, it's his close friends and religious leaders. It's his close friends and religious leaders. And so look at the text with me. I want you to see two observations quickly this morning. The first one is, speaking of Jesus, his friends thought he was crazy. His friends thought he was crazy. I wonder if you saw it in the text when we read it. Look at verse 20 again. And the multitude cometh again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. The language of friends there is not an acquaintance. It's not a buddy. It's not a pal. It's the closest people in his life. That's the language in the Greek, in the original text. The closest people in Jesus' life came out and said, he is beside himself. So here we find the setting. Jesus had called his 12 disciples. We saw that two weeks ago. And, when, and they go back to the city of Capernaum and and again, a multitude of people come together. The crowd is so big and so needy, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but they are in need of Jesus. 
that Jesus and his disciples cannot even eat bread. They can't even have a meal. The people are pressing on Jesus. And verse 21 told us that his friends, his close friends, heard about what was going on with Jesus. They heard about everything that had happened with Jesus. And these close friends, maybe some families involved, maybe his brothers, maybe some, maybe some of his sisters, maybe aunts and uncles. Could have been them. John chapter 7 tells us in verse 5 that neither did his brethren believe in him. His own family didn't believe he was who he said he was. Mark 6 tells us that Jesus had some half-brothers and sisters, James and Joseph and Judah and Simon. He's got some sisters in there as well in Mark 6. Could be that his family is a part of this, but here this group of people, this close friend group, had come from Nazareth. Now, it was a crisis. Now, you got to understand, Nazareth is not close to Capernaum. Nazareth is 30 miles from Capernaum. Now, 30 miles for you and I may not seem far, but when you got a donkey and that's and, and your feet, and you look a little bit like Fred Flintstone running down the sidewalk, that's the best you got. 30 miles is a long way. And so these people are like, Jesus has lost his mind. We got to go help him. We got to go help. We got to figure out what's going on. It's a time for a crisis intervention because he's beside himself. He has lost his mind. Jesus is crazy. Now let me pause right there and let me remind you of something I've shared with you dozens of times as a church. This text, maybe unlike any other scriptural text, lays out what C.S. Lewis called is his trilemma. What is the trilemma? The trilemma, I think it's actually there in your notes as well. It poses three options for Jesus. One is that Jesus says he is God, but he knows that that's not true, so he's a deceiver. He's a liar. Right? It's Jesus says he's God, but he knows he's not, so he's a liar. The second part of the trilemma is Jesus thinks he's God, but he isn't, so he's a madman. He's beside himself. He's a lunatic. That's what Lewis said. He's either a liar or a lunatic because Jesus thinks he's God, but he's not. The third aspect of this is that Jesus claims to be God because he really is God. And therefore, he is Lord. So it's liar lunatic or Lord. Now keep that in mind because we're going to need that in a moment. The text here in Mark 3 gives us a picture that some, his close friends, thought he was a lunatic. Now I need you to pause with me for a moment. Try to stay with me, all right? And think with me. Put yourself in Jesus' position. People that you love, people that claim to love you, people that are close to you thought Jesus was crazy. Now, I want you to think how heartbreaking this is for our Lord. I want you to think about it. Avoid the temptation to dismiss the difficulty of the human life for Jesus because He's the Son of God. He is also truly man. And so this is a moment of incredible rejection, of incredible pain. It's a good reminder for all of us today that Jesus, who I believe, and I'm presenting to you for the next couple of weeks as the most misunderstood person in human history, that Jesus understands the pain of rejection from those he loves. 
He understands how you feel when you have felt that. His close friends, close relatives thought he was crazy. Secondly, the text tells us not only did his friends think he was crazy, but his enemies thought he was demon-possessed. Remember what I told you? It's a text about accusation. His friends think he's crazy. His enemies think he's demon-possessed. We call them, I call them enemies, but Jesus had not made them enemies. The spiritual leaders of, 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 of Israel in that day, the ones who knew Scripture best, they had opposed Christ. They had become enemies and were accusing him. Now let me pause right here. Let me pause right here and let me have your just attention. I want to I tread carefully and let me say, this is not the intention of the text, but I feel like I need to speak to this pastorally for a moment. There are many in our church, some, several, I, I don't know for specific, but no doubt there are some of you who have been deeply hurt by both family and spiritual leaders or just family or just spiritual leaders. That hurt may have come to you in a variety and of various amounts of ways, but nonetheless that hurt has come by family and spiritual leaders. Maybe it came about through neglect. Neglect of those that claim to love you. Well, let me just speak as, as pointedly as I can as a pastor to this. There is one thing that I hope and pray for those that come to our church. Whether you're here for one Sunday or 50 years of Sundays, it's that those that have been hurt deeply find this place to be a place of healing. Those that have been hurt deeply, like Jesus is hurt in this text, find this place to be a place of healing. Because in this place, it's not that we have, the pastors are perfect, it's not that our teachers here always exegete the scripture flawlessly, or that our membership is impeccable, or our culture is second to none, but that we simply give you Jesus, the perfect, flawless, impeccable Savior. And our hope is that those that have been wounded can find healing from the great healer. And so let me just say, this text tells the hurting one in here that Jesus knows how you feel. He doesn't, doesn't mean that he's experienced everything you've experienced, but the pain and rejection that many of us have experienced from family, from religious leaders, Jesus understands. Mark chapter 3 tells us that the, the religious leaders brought an accusation to Jesus that was ridiculous. I want you to see it in verse 22. And the scribes, those are religious leaders, came down from Jerusalem, which the ones that came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casted he out devils. So the scribes, the spiritual leaders, stay with me. The scribes come down to, to in the, the, the language of coming down means from the, the elevation, the physical, geographical elevation of Jerusalem. They come down to Capernaum, and they said, Jesus has Beelzebub. What is that? What is that word? Who is Beelzebub? Beelzebub is a title for Satan. It's a specific title. It means Lord of the house. They're saying that Jesus is Jesus has the guy that's in charge of all the demons. Jesus has that guy living in him. 
They said, the Lord of the demons, Beelzebub, has taken up residence in Jesus. And that the only way Jesus casts out demons is by the power of the head of the demons. That's what they're saying. That's what they're putting on Jesus. The guy who's in charge of the demons lives in Jesus or is at least empowering Jesus. And if you're sitting there and you think yourself to be any kind of a logical person, you got to follow how illogical this is. It's the equivalent, if I can use a, a, a sensitive illustration, it's the equivalent of someone saying to a surgeon who just removed a cancerous tumor from their body, looking at that surgeon and saying, you're on the same team as the cancer. It's just as illogical, maybe even more so. To say to a surgeon, you're on the same team as the cancer. No, 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 no. He's dealing with the cancer. So to say that Jesus has come and is, has, has Satan taking, taking up residence in Jesus is the exact opposite. See, Jesus came to cut out the spiritual cancer. He wasn't a part of the cancer. Jesus is kicking demons out. Yet they're saying that Jesus is in cahoots with the demons, specifically Satan. The truth is these scribes hate Jesus. They have the Torah in one hand and hatred in their hearts. The Torah in one hand and hatred in their heart. They revile Jesus. In fact, we heard two weeks ago in Mark 3 that, that the Pharisees went forth and took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They wanted Jesus dead. They hated him. The truth is, these scribes are evil. They're evil disguised as righteousness. The evil ones disguised as righteousness are claiming that the one who is righteous is evil. They have threatened him and they only know to call him evil. They accused him of being a deceiver and a liar. And so very quickly here, Jesus gives three word pictures in this text. I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. Try to stay with me. If you could help me, please help me quiet the distractions for just a moment. The three pictures here are one, a divided kingdom. Jesus speaks of a divided kingdom, a divided house speaking in this moment, and a ransacked house. Jesus is showing them their inconsistencies. He's showing them, verse 23, says that Jesus called the crowds unto himself and began to teach in these three parables. He tells the, the crowd about the, 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 the evil of these. Verse 23, he called them unto him and said to them in parables, here's the first one, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So he says the divided kingdom is illogical. The second part there in verse 25 is a house divided cannot stand. And so there's the divided house. Now here's the point. Listen very carefully. Don't miss this. Satan would never have allowed this threat to his kingdom ever. It's, it's flat out foolish. Verse 27, no one can enter in a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he'll first bind the strong man, and then he'll spoil his house. We'll come back to that in a moment, but here's the point. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't accuse me of being evil when I've been here casting evil out. 
That's what he's saying. It's the equivalent of, of, of and I know we've got a few Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals fans in here, so bear with me. Please don't get offended. It's the equivalent of saying to me, don't accuse me of being a Cardinals fan when I've been throwing them out my house all my life. Amen? Or Sox fans. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But that's what Jesus is saying. And in this passage, the scribes attributed power to Satan rather than the Holy the Spirit of God. And in doing so, these scribes had put themselves in eternal harm and condemnation. So the big obvious question here is this. We read it already once. Let's speak to this very briefly this morning. What is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Ghost? What is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Ghost? We, we should ask that question. Do you know why? Because Jesus said in verse 28, look there with me, Verily I say unto you, that word verily is like our word that we would say amen, or truly, truth, it's a truth statement. He's saying, verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. All of this shall be forgiven. He, he said there, all sins and even blasphemies, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he had an unclean spirit. So Jesus gives us this predicament. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because if you do, there is no forgiveness. Let's speak to this quickly. Does it mean, like I often thought in my journey as a Christian, through my Christian life, does blaspheme the Holy Spirit mean that I'm going about, I'm trusting in Christ, I want to be his disciple, I'm walking with God, I'm, I'm, I'm a faithful Christian, I'm going to church, and then in a moment of weakness, I unintentionally stumble, and I accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I say something or do something, and now this means I've been kicked out of the family of God. Is that what it means? Let me say, listen, that is absolutely not what this means. It's not what it means. In fact, if you're here today and you are alarmed in this moment, you're thinking, I would never want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I would never want to commit this sin that has no forgiveness. I, I would never want to do that. Instead, you want to be forgiven by Christ. You want to be certain that you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And in this moment that Jesus is speaking and saying all this, hear me, if you're here saying, I would never want to do that, then there's a very good reason for you to believe that you would never. And that you can't. There is no alarm to you in this moment that you could accidentally commit this sin. But in this moment, Jesus is speaking and he's saying to the people that are in front of him that have seen, they have seen the overwhelming evidence of the Spirit's power in their life. In the life of Jesus, everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, those people that were there in front of him instead of choosing to attribute the work of Jesus to the power of the Holy Spirit, instead attributed it to Satan. The same people here saw Jesus heal on the Sabbath. They saw Jesus cast out demons. They saw people, they saw Jesus heal the man with the withered hand. They saw Jesus heal the man that was a leper. They saw Jesus heal the man that was brought through the roof on the bed who was, who was a paralyzed man. They saw Jesus do it all. And instead of saying, that man is the son of God, they instead said, that man has a demon. That's what Jesus is saying to them. They witnessed all of this. 
And Jesus inviting sinners to repentance, and instead they accused him of having an unclean spirit. Here's the point. Listen very carefully. Please don't miss this. They had hardened their hearts against Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And because of their rejection of Jesus, they would bring about eternal damnation. No forgiveness. Their final conclusion about Jesus was that he was a demon-possessed liar and deceiver. And because of this final conclusion about Christ, they were guilty of an eternal sin. Listen, here's the point. Whatever your final decision is about Jesus, it has eternal consequences. That's the point. Your final decision about Jesus has eternal consequences. Whatever you decide, whatever you choose to do with Jesus has an eternal consequence or the scripture is a lie, Jesus is a liar, and God has lied. There's an eternal consequence. Jesus says, those who see my work, those who see me in my life, and by the way, those of us who have witnessed to the cross and the resurrection and look at Jesus and say, I don't want him, I don't need him, I'll live my life in my own righteousness. That's what Jesus is speaking of. To reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to receive to yourself eternal damnation. If you're here today, if you're here today, and you're looking around saying, this is fine, it's fine that you guys all want this religion, Jesus is fine for you, you need him, I don't need him, Listen, can I just say to you very graciously, compassionately, you have placed yourself in a very perilous position, a very dangerous place of rejecting Jesus. Of rejecting Jesus. I gave you a lengthy quote there. I'll read it quickly. From William Hendrickson. For penitence, they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up in his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading, the warning, the voice, that man has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. And friends, let me just caution you this morning. If you're here and you say, I don't want Jesus, I don't think I need Jesus, you have placed yourself on a dangerous, dangerous road. The truth is this, listen. Forgiveness is available to the worst of us. Forgiveness is available to all of us. But the point of this passage is that not a person in this room will God hold back forgiveness. Not a person in this room will God hold back forgiveness except the one who willingly turns away from Jesus. That's it. Some turn away because they hate him. They flat out hate Jesus. And so they reject him. Some turn Jesus away because 
they think that they can save themselves. They want to rest in their own sense of self-righteousness. Some turn Jesus away because they love religion more. They would love to try to work their way to Jesus. And what have we, what have all those who have turned Jesus away for whatever reason, what have they done? They have seen the Savior, they have seen Christ in all of his power, and they have refused him, just like the scribes. And you're, maybe you're saying that this morning. Maybe you're sitting there wondering as I'm saying this. How can you be so sure? How can you be so sure that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? How can you be so sure that Jesus can or would save me? How can you be so sure? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what my sins are. You don't know what egregious actions I've taken. How can you be so sure that that Savior in the Scripture can save me? Let me tell you how I'm so sure. In verse 27, we saw these words. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Let me tell you what happened at the end of the book of Mark. Listen. There was a strong man. That strong man, if I can say it like this, was Satan. The deceiver of men the tempter of all men. What happened at the end of the book of Mark is Jesus went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he bound up the strong man. But Jesus died. The strong man thought Jesus lost. But three days after Jesus died, was buried, the Bible tells us, as do over 500 other living people, that Jesus rose again from the grave. That the Son of God proved that everything He said was true and that He was God. And what did He do? He spoiled everything that Satan thought He had won. And in Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection, He says to everybody here and everybody out there, I am the Savior. I am the Savior. I am who I said I am. You might think I'm a liar. You might think I'm a lunatic. But in my resurrection and my ascension to heaven, I have proved that I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. And in the resurrection as evidence to us that Jesus has gone into the house of the strong man. He has bound him up and he has spoiled him. Jesus says to you, I can save you. You say, but I've done. You have no idea. I don't need to know. The cross says Jesus has paid it all. And if you're here today, my encouragement to you is don't commit the don't commit the unpardonable sin of rejecting Jesus. To the one who accepts, there's forgiveness. To the one who rejects, there is no forgiveness. The one who accepts Jesus, forgiveness. The one who rejects Jesus.
This passage is heartbreaking, isn't it? Jesus is called crazy by his best friends. The religious leaders want to kill him. You know what's even more heartbreaking? What's even more heartbreaking is to know that Jesus was who he said he was. That he went to the cross for our sins. That he was raised three days later. And that any one of us would have hope, John. He's the Savior of the world. And he can be your Savior. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, my hope and prayer is that you would come to faith in Jesus. At the very least, would you leave and just say, you know what? I'll consider it. I'll consider it. I'd be glad to pray with you about that. I'd be glad to spend time with you and show you what the scriptures say. I'd be glad to help you in any way I could with that. But the most important decision you'll ever make in your life is what you will choose to do with Jesus. What you will choose to do with Jesus. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.